Audio, part of the conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I am your host, Anna Rasquat Paz. In each episode of our show, we speak to top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. Today, we talk to Susan Gelman, professor of psychology at the University of Michigan. Professor Gelman is also the director of the Conceptual Development Lab, where she and her team study how children learn concepts, who they learn them from, and how they categorize this knowledge. Professor Gelman was elected fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2008, and in 2011, fellow of the American Psychological Association. She is the author of many books, but one in particular has had significant impact in the field, The Essential Child, The Origins of Essentialism in Everyday Thought, which you wrote in uh, 2003, correct? That's right. Welcome to our show, Professor Gelman. Thank you. You are uh, the author of two articles we published. One appeared in the 2009 Annual Review of Psychology, and it's called Learning from Others, Children's Construction of Concepts, and the other in the 2011 Annual Review of Anthropology called Concepts and Folk Theories. So how do you define essentialism, and what role does it play in our understanding of concepts? So essentialism is a cognitive bias that um, people across a wide range of cultures seem to have, um, and across a wide range of ages, too. And it's a belief that uh, the everyday categories in the world around us have some deep underlying basis to them. So if you look around around the world and you see different birds, you'll notice that they're all very different from one another, from ostriches to penguins to sparrows and so forth. But if you're an essentialist, you think that there's some quality that they all have in common some maybe hidden, non-obvious quality that makes them all birds, that makes them what they are and gives them their identity and is responsible for why they all um, uh, have certain ways of behaving and uh, certain properties and so forth. So it, it's an assumption that the world is not just how it looks on the surface, but that there's... Um, another layer underneath that can really explain the structure of the world. Right. So your research has shown that um, this cognitive bias exists in really young children. So this means that children um, aren't passive receivers, but they actually process the information um, that they learn from others. So can you tell us a little bit more about this, how thinking about children has changed? Yes. Um, so in some ways... Um, the view of children um, that we've seen uh, in psychology has really undergone a tremendous change over the last uh, 30 years or so. So it used to be thought that children were fairly passive uh, receivers of whatever it was that they were told. So you could tell a child anything, um, and that would be kind of the content of their beliefs. Um, and furthermore, the, the idea that was often held was that children are just captured by the superficial appearances of what they see, and that's the sum total of how they reason about the world. But um, with various studies that people have done looking at the kinds of beliefs 
for example, essentialist beliefs, but also beliefs about causality, beliefs about uh, how the mind works, and so on. We see that even very young children, and in some cases even babies, um, are thinking about the world in a way that can't simply be um, attributed to what's on the surface. Right. There must be something good about essentialism if we're born with this. There's something good and there's something bad. So it's an interesting mixture. Um, a lot of times with the cognitive biases that we have um, in thinking about the world, they're useful, but they're not 100% accurate. A bias like essentialism is good in the sense that it motivates us to look for more structure to the world. You, you could think of it as one of the reasons why we expect science to work. Um, why spend years studying, you know, salamanders or or fish or any other species unless there's some belief and commitment that there is structure there for us to discover. So that's really useful if we go around the world thinking that there's more to discover than meets the eye. Um, it's it's very consistent with sort of a, a scientific approach to the world. But at the same time, we tend to essentialize um, not just categories of living things, but also um, social categories, for example, such as gender and race. And their essentialism can really lead us astray and um, fit in with uh, stereotypes and biases about these social categories that are not actually rooted in um, reality. So what you're saying is that racism and sexism um, are born of essentialism, they're over-essentialism, is that correct? That's correct. Right, so how do you prevent that? How do you prevent children from going so far as to assume that all women um, are alike and, and you know all people of a different color are alike? Yeah, that's a great question, and it's one that a lot of people have been wrestling with for, for a long time now. And um, I guess there are two ways of thinking about it. So on the one hand, um, essentialism, as far as we can tell, does seem fairly resistant to um, attempts to eradicate it. Um, and so there are cases where people have been well-meaning and attempting to um, provide counter-essentialist information to children. And sometimes what happens is that that can backfire. So, for example, um, when, when we're thinking about gender essentialism, um, there are studies showing that if you show children, say, pictures that go against the stereotypes, so, um, say, a woman firefighter, for example, uh, you would think that's great, that's giving children information that should kind of change the way they think about that category, but often children will misremember the information you gave so that it's actually in their memory of what you showed them, it was a male firefighter, for example. So sometimes, sometimes the information you provide gets distorted um, because of these pre-existing beliefs, and then they end up just reinforcing the beliefs all the further. Um, another complication, so I'll give you all the negative first, but I think there is 
some light at the end of the tunnel, which I'll mention in a minute. <laughs> um, another point to this is that the messages that we give to children are layered. There's what we say on the surface explicitly, but then there's also what we're implying implicitly. And uh, one way that uh, we've looked at that um, in my lab is, um, again, taking the, the example of gender essentialism. Often when parents are trying to be uh, non-essentialist and open-minded, they might say something like, anybody can be a firefighter. Boys can be firefighters. Girls can be firefighters. So explicitly, that is a counter-stereotype statement. But implicitly, what they are doing is emphasizing that boys and girls are categories that you can make inferences about and that you can make generalizations about. And uh, it turns out that when children hear um, words like boys as a group or girls as a group, they they do make inferences about these categories being very distinct. But the light at the end of the tunnel that I promised, uh, there's been some very exciting work, I think, um, looking at ways to change how people think about um, categories that they might start out with an essentialist belief about and, and nudging them towards uh, a different view. And here I'm thinking of some... Um, really excellent work by Carol Dweck, who's a psychologist at Stanford, who's looked at people's beliefs about intelligence. And some people have a more essentialist view of intelligence, which she calls an entity view, that you're born either smart or not smart, there's nothing you can do to change it, you're um, kind of um, immune to any kind of um, environmental influence, and every time you take a test, it's telling you your level of intelligence. So that's an essentialist view. Um, other people have a more, what she calls an incremental view, where they think, well, intelligence is flexible, it's something that can be exercised, it's something that can change, be modified, it's not fixed, you're not born with it, um, and you can really put in effort to uh, improve your mental functioning, for example. And the really optimistic thing is that Dweck has found that if you can identify which perspective a person has and then intervene, and you can shift how people think about something like intelligence or math ability. That's really interesting, and um, I wanted to ask you precisely about this, you know, about how you can get children to think about themselves, specifically countering this essentialist bias. Yes, yeah, so I think uh, part of it is really providing an alternative framework where um, they can understand not just that the essentialism is wrong, but uh, as I said, an alternative that takes its place. So uh, one way of doing it would be, for example, showing that something, a category that they think is fixed can change as a result of experiences in the way that Dweck talks about intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, but another way might be to uh, provide children with information about variability. 
So if you can instruct children about um, all that variability that really exists and then link that to environmental causes, for example, that starts to open their minds a little and help them to see that um, uh, they can't just think about these categories in terms of an inborn fixed essence. It's a slow process, and I think it's one that um, requires a lot of uh, different kinds of information over an extended period of time. I don't think it's something you can just kind of fix with um, a, a single intervention. You you talk about how children learn from adults, um, how how they learn, how they listen, how they select and process that information. Um, specifically, you talk about credulity and skepticism. So can you mm -hmm. tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I find that a really interesting topic because um, at first I just want to say make one little point kind of taking a step back, which is um, the field of developmental psychology owes an enormous debt to Jean Piaget. He was like the father of developmental psychology. And he um, really focused on what was inside the child's head and didn't really spend a lot of time worrying about the social context in which children are learning. Right. He was aware of it. Um, he did discuss it to some extent. But I think for a long period of time, we tended to look at children's beliefs kind of unto themselves. And uh, more recently, there's been a lot of interest in how children are part of a social environment. And as you say, being part of a social environment means that you have to on the one hand, be open to the kinds of information that the people around you are providing. I mean, this is why our species has been so tremendously successful at gaining knowledge and building technologies and um, in undergoing cultural change because we learn from our elders, and we build on the knowledge from prior generations. So we are very open to learning from others. That's a real hallmark of our species, and it's one of the really exciting things about uh, looking at development is looking at that openness that children have to the um, kinds of experiences that other people provide. But on the other hand, if children were to believe everything they heard in a completely uncritical way, um, that could be disastrous. Sometimes people try to deceive us. Sometimes people try to entertain us with fiction. Um, sometimes people are just plain wrong. Um, so we have to be selective in the, in, in the information that we take in. If children weren't selective, then uh, they could really be led down a very misleading path. So it's it's um, it's it's a really difficult kind of problem that every child faces. They have to learn from from the people around them, or they're not going to be uh, a full fledged adult with with the kinds of knowledge, cultural knowledge, linguistic knowledge, and so on that that we expect um, to obtain by the time we're we're adults. But um, 
they have to have a certain degree of skepticism there from the start. So there's been a lot of interest lately in how children tread that path between, um, you know, taking inf information but not taking in too much information. What are what are some of the specific ways in which they do this? So um, there are some general approaches children seem to have about others around them. I, I, I think it's fair to say that all else being equal, children are somewhat biased toward deferring to the adults around them, to assuming that the adults around them are well-meaning and um, providing useful information. And this comes out in some rather dramatic ways. Um, there have been some really interesting studies recently looking at uh, children's powerful tendency to imitate um, the actions that um, people uh, produce for them. So if, if you uh, sit a child down and make it clear that you are addressing the child and demonstrating something for them, so there's that intention to engage and communicate with the child, the child is very, very prepared to um, to imitate rather precisely what it is that you present to them. So they're they're very good at um, learning in that sort of context. But on the other hand, if there's any clue that this adult maybe doesn't know what they're talking about or doesn't have access to the appropriate knowledge, so someone who's blindfolded and telling you what's inside of a box, or somebody who expresses doubt, or somebody who has a history of telling you the wrong thing that the child knows is wrong, you know, mislabeling objects the child already knows the name for, for example. They will pick up on that at a very young age, and then um, uh, in those cases, children refrain from learning from those adults. Right. Um, and so those those abilities get, uh, they're, they're somewhat crude at a young age, you know, they're not really subtle distinctions um, on the part of toddlers or early preschoolers, but they're there, and then they get increasingly refined as children get older and get more knowledgeable. So I just wanted to go back to causality. You were talking about how essentialism affects um, causality. And it yeah. seems that this is something that uh, kind of sticks with us as we grow up. Um, there are certain things that, uh, certain beliefs uh, that, that, that stay with us. And this is when we talk about, you know, rational and irrational beliefs. We have mm. competing explanations for a lot of things. How do we, as human beings and adults, reconcile all that? Yeah, that is a really fascinating question. Um, the way people have sometimes frame this as um, science, uh, scientific beliefs versus supernatural beliefs, for example. And supernatural beliefs could be anything for which we don't really have a scientific explanation. It could be a belief in ghosts. It could be a belief in magic. It could be a belief in luck. It could be a belief in religion. Um, in all of these cases, we're willing, as adults, we're willing to entertain beliefs that 
aren't rooted in um, kind of the rational scientific inquiry. Now, um, you can look at that and say, well, these are completely diametrically opposed. But from another perspective, I look at that and I think there's a lot in common to what scientists do and uh, people who are trying to explain the world in supernatural terms, which is in both cases um, someone's trying to understand and provide an, an explanation for what's going on. And, of course, in the case of science, we're kind of wedded to the truth and to um, empirical evidence and to testability and falsifiability and um, you can run the experiment and see if it confirms your hypothesis or not. If you believe in something supernatural, you're not going to go through that same process, but you're still looking for an explanation. There's been um, increasing interest in this question of how these two different frameworks fit together, if at all. And uh, I think what we can say from from what we know so far is that um, these can be coexisting systems. You can have someone who, um, for example, who believes that uh, AIDS is caused by a virus, the scientific approach, but also that um, AIDS is caused by witchcraft. This is a common belief among certain groups in South Africa. And if you ask people, well, how could it be? You know, you said it was a virus this time. You said it was a witch this time. How could that be? Um, often you will get ways in which these two positions are woven together. Uh, oh, the witch, uh, the witchcraft put the person in the path of a lover who turned out to have been infected with the virus. Right. So they can be they can be combined in this way. If you don't look closely at at the actual belief systems, you might just think, okay, these are incompatible systems. But once you kind of examine them up close, often people find ways to make these two seemingly incompatible systems actually fit together. So, just to to, to conclude, what does this do to our ability to um, evaluate our own knowledge? Well, psychology in part is a process of coming to understand our own knowledge uh, in new and um, more sophisticated ways. Uh, I, I take from this that um, sometimes when we think we're being uh, knowledgeable and uh, bound to the truth, um, we may actually be operating with some biases that we're not even aware of. And um, so we see this in the case of children, that there are you know, some fairly blatant essentialist biases that they're not even aware of, but we can see if we ask the right questions. And I think the same is, is true for adults as well. So it doesn't mean that... Um, we can't do science or that we can't um, uh, uncover our biases. I think uh, 
that's that's part of what this enterprise is about. But we're often kind of bound by some subtle underlying assumptions that we're, we're not always aware of. Professor Gilman, thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you. It was a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks, I really enjoyed it. You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Ana Rasquat Paz. Thanks for listening.